We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a whole lot of coronavirus and pork issues, allegations that a local farmers association paid its members in Chinese currency, former President Chen Shui-bian taking to the airwaves on a new radio show, and gender equality, as mentioned in a report by the Cabinet which ranks Taiwan, well, first in Asia. But we'll begin with events in the US Capitol this week when supporters of Donald Trump forced their way into the US Capitol building. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs here has described the riots which resulted in the deaths of four people as regrettable, with Ministry spokeswoman Joanne Oh saying the government is still closely watching related developments. Now, there was no mention also of the ROC flags seen in TV footage of the riots. While that same day those events were playing out, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that America's ambassador to the United Nations Kelly Craft will be visiting Taiwan soon. Pompeo didn't give an exact date for when that trip could take place and the announcement was part of a statement in support of Hong Kong's democratic movement. Pompeo described Taiwan as a reliable partner and vibrant democracy that has flourished despite Beijing's efforts to undermine its great success and he went on to say that Taiwan shows what a free China could achieve. So Brian, I'm going to play devil's advocate here mate and say regrettable seems to be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, I think it's just uh, the government is, is kind of waffling on this issue. I mean, the Tsai administration probably would not take a particularly strong stance on, on what's happening in the U.S. with these, these riots and, and all this violence that occurred uh, because of the fact that they're hoping to benefit in some way from maybe last-minute moves of the Trump administration to benefit Taiwan. And at the same time, there's a, a substantive constituency of the pan-green camp that actually does believe all these conspiracy theories that the election was stolen from Trump and that the media was on Biden's side and that he was sabotaging this way. And so Tsai is also afraid of offending those people who are among its supporters, within the DPP even, uh, among the Taiwanese media. Even it's unfortunate, I think, because of just the lack of fact-checking and just among voters. And so I think that's, that's, that explains part of this stance. And Nicola, regrettable. Of course, regrettable seems a bit lame when we have Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, calling Trump a sick person who has disgraced his country. And Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said that Trump has been inciting insurrection in his own country. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, described the violence as disgraceful and said that it should be vigorously condemned, while UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson described them as disgraceful scenes and said that Donald Trump was completely wrong to cast doubt on the US election outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think as Brian said, um, the Tsai administration were probably just playing it safe and and, and kind of calculating um, how their comments would be received not only um, by the Trump administration, but also by their domestic audience. And if, if you look at um, uh, Rouhani or, or Nicholas Sturgeon or Boris Johnson, I mean, they could s- safely say what they said, knowing that they had the weight of public opinion behind them. So that that's, I guess, less of an issue for them. Um, but with, with Taiwan, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, when we look back on what happened at the capital, no one's really going to think, well, Taiwan only said it was regret- regrettable, right? Um, so I think they were probably looking out for their own interests in a way when they made that statement. And and um, Taiwan has um, a very has had a very favourable view towards the Trump administration. There is a strong view here that um, the Trump administration has, has helped um, 
promote Taiwan's international status, that it's been a big supporter of Taiwan. I guess there was some calculation that they didn't want to look too ungrateful. And, and also everything was happening in real time. And, and President Trump initially appeared to be endorsing what was happening in, in Capitol before he kind of later condemned the violence. Um, and I, I think people were just, you know, basically taking the safe route. And Brian, of course, no mention of the ROC flags at the riots. When, of course, KMT chairman Johnny Jung did come out and say maybe the government should say something about this. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I mean, there are a number of flags seen there. The Vietnamese flag, the South Korean flag, the Israeli flag and the ROC flag. And so the question is, is does Taiwan want to find itself just in the company of, of Trump supporters? And I think that, unfortunately, there will be people that do cheer this on and see that, oh, there are Americans that care about Taiwan and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that uh, it's just it's an awkward position Taiwan has put in. Um, so I think it's also interesting then how Taiwan will have to react to the craft visit to Taiwan because it's such a last minute move. Um, ostensibly, it's aimed at, at uh, benefiting Hong Kong, though it won't actually do anything to help Hong Kong. Um, it's a way just to stick it to China, I think. And so this is another thing that Taiwan has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, it's also it's also one of those interesting things that because under the uh, Trump administration, U.S.-Taiwan relations were thought to have grown with the visit of officials such as Keith Kroc, the Undersecretary of State, or Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. But just having this kind of last-minute visit by the American U.N. ambassador just to kind of stick it to China over the issue of Hong Kong, is it cheapens the value of, of saying that there is this growth in relations when apparently just suddenly you'll have this kind of thing declared with just less than two weeks left to go in the Trump administration. And Nicola, maybe, do you think the government could turn around and say, thank you very much for the offer? of the visit but with the coronavirus situation now maybe we'll just delay it for a bit and of course of course kelly craft might not have a job in a couple of weeks anyway well the government could say that i i, I doubt i doubt they would and it might not be very politic for them to say that because obviously um they do want to encourage these <laughs> high level visits and look the the u.s ambassador to the u.n should be able to come to taiwan that shouldn't be an issue but i think there is a question of of what is the value of her coming now what can she actually achieve and if it is just the timing of it is is a little bit odd the sudden announcement by pompeo um and it does the timing makes it look like like the administration is just trying to irritate China and that's that's not necessarily going to be to Taiwan's advantage um, to be if it is being used a bit like a political pawn in that way. So I, I think it has to be very clear why she's coming here um, and what she hopes to achieve. Um, and, you know, I, I would be interested to know if, if the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or if AIT knew about the visit or if this was just sprung on them and, and, and you know, just... Um, why Pompeo is doing this now. Of course, Brian, of course, there was also no mention of either the visit or the riot on the Moffa Twitter page, which is odd because Moffa usually enjoys tweeting about <laughs> anti-democratic riots and things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just tweets about Hong Kong, but just then doesn't actually follow up with action many times. And so this is a case in which, because it's in Taiwan's interest, Taiwan has been silent on the issue. Um, but the visit also, it, it's kind of interesting, too, because we always have this narrative that the Pam Blue Camp will throw around saying that whenever there's an arms sale to Taiwan, no matter what it is, no matter if it's just cheap or outdated American equipment, Taiwan has to take it. I wonder if we're going to have this narrative now of just whenever some random American government official wants to come to Taiwan, Taiwan will just accept it. And then this will be used, for example, regarding concerns about uh, COVID-19 getting to Taiwan and the fact that they have these American uh, officials kind of not going through quarantine and meeting with all these high-level policymakers. Um, and this could be potentially dangerous. I wonder if you'll have that kind of narrative bring, uh, d d kind of coming up over time um, because of this. But not on Twitter, Nicola. I mean, do you think it's odd that Moffa didn't mention either the riots or Kraft's visit on its Twitter page, which is usually very busy? Um, I mean... It 
Moffat isn't. I think they're quite selective about their their tweets, um, and they do tweet. Uh, there are certain issues that they will always tweet about. Um, I think there's still time for them to to um, tweet more about uh, the the high level visit. Um, maybe they didn't know it was coming, so they hadn't prepared to tweet. But um, and maybe they're waiting to find out more about her actual agenda um, on the what happened in the capital um, yes they, they could have said something um, I don't think it's totally unusual that they didn't there had been a government statement about it um, and you know as we said earlier it looked like they were they were just trying to be very cautious about what they said so I'm not totally surprised about that would have been a short tweet one word regrettable Yes, <laughs> they wouldn't have to worry about that 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 word limit, really, would they? Anyway, moving on to where we were exactly a year ago, that being the coronavirus outbreak, when then we were talking about concern over a new disease in China. Of course, that concern morphed into what it became and is becoming. Now, while the international press has been focusing on what it's been lauding as Taiwan's successful handling of the outbreak, there are now questions over the future direction that Taiwan could take, mainly regarding its border restrictions. And some are arguing that continuing border restrictions could affect Taiwan's economy and further isolate the island internationally. Of course, that argument comes as the government is set to introduce stricter home quarantine regulations on January the 15th, stipulating that homes can only be used for home quarantine purposes if only the person in quarantine lives in said residence. And that means more people will need to stay in quarantine hotels. And there lies another quandary, as several local governments are now saying that only residents of their fair cities will be able to stay in hotels in their cities. Now, the new rules are in response to an expected influx of arrivals prior to the Lunar New Year holiday. And if all that wasn't enough this week, well, controversy arose over the use of data collected by the government's Coronavirus Border Fence 2.0 tracking system. And that was brought into question over concerns of human rights. Premier Su Jung Chung, though, told reporters that the electronic fence system to monitor the movements of people in quarantine does not violate their human rights and has not been implemented to violate people's privacy, but rather to protect the health of Taiwan's 23 million people. Concerns about the system were raised after authorities reported that five people who were supposed to be observing self-health management after their 14-day quarantine had attended a year-end concert in Taoyuan, while several others had attempted to enter New Year's Eve countdown events in Taipei and again in Taoyuan. Now, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong said this week that all data collected via the electronic fence is deleted after 28 days. So, Brian, let's begin with concern about Taiwan, Taiwan's border restrictions maybe, well, causing problems to Taiwan's economy and also further isolating the island internationally. Yeah, it's interesting because this is a narrative that the Pan Blue Camp had used previously last year, early on actually in the pandemic, to attack the Tsai administration, claiming that Tsai was going too far, this was damaging Tsai's, uh, Taiwan's economy in order to prevent the virus, and that there was actually a need to, uh, with the situation under control, to gradually open up. But then I think that particularly because of the fact that things started getting worse again in other parts of the world, the KMT wasn't really able to leverage on this too much. There was general satisfaction with what the Tsai administration was doing. But I think this narrative will come up again and again as we see other parts of the world kind of loosening restrictions. Um, Taiwan has not undergone lockdown. It's avoided that thus far, and that lockdowns are evidently damaging to the economy. Uh, but I think just people will get impatient. 
Um, I think also, particularly after the case of domestic transmission from the pilot, a New Zealand pilot, um, there's also concern about just reduced quarantine periods for, for example, travelers to Taiwan. I mean, there are some businessmen that have had reduced quarantine periods, as have had some performing artists and that kind of thing. So I think there'll be more scrutiny on that going forward. I mean, I, I can't see that really getting far as an idea now. Um, or just being allowed to continue because of this the transmissions. And of course, Nicola, we have the new variant of the coronavirus from the UK. And of course, sev- five people, I believe, so far have been confirmed to have that variant in Taiwan. And so lifting border restrictions, probably a bad time to start talking about it. Yes. A bad time to start doing it. I mean, you know, you look at the alternative and the alternative is like what you see in the US and and the UK, where it's like either complete mayhem and, you know, terrible catastrophic situations in hospitals where they're just being completely overwhelmed. Um, or you've also got lock, like very severe lockdowns. You know, I look at my family in the UK and they're stuck at home. My my niece and nephew can't go to school like every other family, um, and you cannot live a normal life. You can't go to the shops safely. You can't go out with your friends. I mean, that's the alternative. It's just miserable. Um, so I think um, people are getting fatigued, but they do need to be reminded just to keep things in perspective and it's it's factually wrong that the that um you know the borders have have um are making the border closures are making the economy suffer more i mean yes it hasn't been great for the the economy but but taiwan and vietnam both of whom have implemented strict um border controls as well as other um tough pandemic measures are are say, have seen economic growth and and that in today's world is something remarkable. So it's not ideal and it's not ideal for every business. But if you start opening up the borders, um, then you're going to start to lose uh, consumer confidence. People are going to stop going out to restaurants. They're going to stop traveling around the island as much because they're going to be more worried about their health. And what about the isolation question, Brian? I mean, obviously, people have computers where you can talk to people the other side of the world if you have an issue. But there are concerns that Taiwan, well, it's not very internationally pronounced anyway, but it could isolate Taiwan more if Taiwan moves in on itself for any length of time. Yeah, I think these kind of criticisms are just leveraging on the long-standing desire of Taiwan to be accepted by the international community or have stronger ties to the international community because of just Taiwan's exclusion um, from a lot of international organizations and a marginality or how it's overshadowed by China. But the paradox is because Taiwan has done so well fighting off COVID-19, this has led to greater international exposure for Taiwan. And so then using this kind of argument that Taiwan is going to be isolated internationally if it does not open up, therefore putting at risk of being affected by COVID the way that every other country in the world has been affected by COVID, whereas Taiwan has distinguished itself from the rest of the world by fighting off COVID. That's kind of an odd argument. Um, But I think it doesn't surprise me just in terms of these frequent themes one seems in Taiwanese politics that this is used to kind of attack the Tsai administration. And of course, Nicola, we have the Ball Defence 2.0 tracking system and concerns about, well, human rights. But I mean, this was being used, it is being used for a medical purpose, a health purpose. It's not being used to like track people's movements where are they going? We want to find out where he's going. He might have done something dodgy. Well, exactly. I mean, I do understand why people have privacy concerns, but the, the current system is based has a legal basis because after SARS in 2003, um, the administration saw the need for for tracing, contact tracing, and they also saw that there would be previous privacy concerns. So they debated it in Parliament and they came up with a law that would be used specifically for public health emergencies. And so it's not just, you know, kind of made up on a whim where they think we've got this technology and we'll just use it. There are um, legal boundaries to it. And, and you know, one of those is 
is to delete all of the information after 28 days. Um, and, you know, the, the system has been proven to work and it has actually caught people who are trying to, to break um, the, the quarantine procedures and putting others at risk. And so, again, it comes down to what do you value most in terms of freedom? Is it, you know, your right not to have any monitoring whatsoever or is it the ability to be able to live your life normally and not in a lockdown? Because that's not freedom either when you can't go outside of your, you know, your own four walls, um, you know, and your kids can't go to school. That's, that's hardly freedom. So people have to kind of decide what they want. And, and yes, it, it has to be held up to public scrutiny. You know, it, it, there was a worrying turn in Singapore um, this week, and I'm not going to compare the Singaporean government to, to Taiwan's democratic government. Um, but, you know, the Singapore government had said that their their own app and Taiwan doesn't use an app. It uses a, a less um, invasive system. But the, the Singapore tracing app would only be used for health purposes. And then they, they backtracked on that and said, well, actually, the police can have access to that data um, for criminal investigations. And, and that's when you really undermine public confidence. So there has to, there has to be um, some kind of checks and balances as well. Of course, Brian, it used to be called Skynet, which is a bit on ominous <laughs> thing, really. But Ball Defence 2.0. So you, obviously, like I said, it's, it's been now been tracking people who were, should have been observing self-health management. Before it was just tracking people in quarantine. Now it's looking at people who should be observing self-health management to make sure they didn't go into any places they shouldn't have been in. Yeah, that's right. And this is a, this is a change in policy. Uh, I think that change in policy could have been communicated better. Um, does it surprise me, for example, the first person fined for that, uh, for violating self-health management, was a migrant worker, for example. And I just think that now the government is is uh, trying to make sure that people under this period are actually not going to crowded places and taking up, uh, stepping up measures regarding that. And that could have been done better. But, uh, yeah, I mean, these, these concerns are, are generally regarding uh, regarding privacy. It doesn't surprise me that it does come up eventually and that one year on into the pandemic, there are kind of stronger voices regarding this. Um, it's interesting because I think civil society advocates regarding data privacy and security have been vocal on the issue, um, though they have been a little strategic. They haven't actually particularly addressed the uh, COVID-19 tracking. It's much more focused on the rollout of a new uh, electronic ID that concerns a lot of these same issues regarding tracking through an RFID system or the centralization of government databases. Um, but, you know, it's also interesting, too, because there was a, a period previously when I was quoted in a BBC article where I commented that people are generally happy with the uh, situation now regarding tracking, but if the government does retain data afterwards and it's because of an issue, probably there'll be backlash from civil society. And after that, actually, all these angry netizens came after me, um, just, you know, trying to find out my personal information and things like that, just because it offended national pride to even criticize that. And so maybe things are changing a little, uh, you know, one year in that there's a little more criticality of the government on this issue. And I don't think that's necessarily an unhealthy thing either. And talking about criticality there, Brian, of course, Taipei City, Kaohsiung City, etc. They've said that only residents of their cities will be able to stay in quarantine hotels in their cities. I mean, it's maybe going too far. It could cause problems. Or do you think it's, it's fair enough that if you have if your residences in Taipei, you can stay in a Taipei hotel, quarantine hotel. But of course, if someone's from Kaohsiung, they actually have to go back to Kaohsiung. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of those things then that uh, particularly local governments will be uh, contesting the central government regarding the allocation of resources to fight the coronavirus. And so I think this is one issue. And so particularly local governments, a lot are controlled by the KMT and they're looking for ways to criticize the central government. And so kind of presenting this image of sticking up for your constituency, protecting your local interests versus uh, what the central government wants to impose you. A lot of, I think, local leaders, mayors are going to try to present that narrative. But also it is true that just there are resources that are limited regarding uh, the availability of hotel facilities. And so I think 
think what the government should do is to step in, intervene, and work with all governments to make sure there's sufficient supply of, of quarantine facilities. Yeah, you, ha- you have to have a system that works. I mean, let's not forget that we are still in the middle of a terrible pandemic and life is not normal and life is is inconvenient. And, you know, thankfully in Taiwan, it's way less inconvenient than it is in other places. But, you know, um, maybe now is just also not the time to travel. Like if you absolutely don't have to see your family for Lunar New Year, maybe don't travel internationally just now and it's hard I mean I would have loved to have gone back home for Christmas to see my mum but it wasn't the right time we you know the UK had its restrictions we could have harmed her potentially and I think people just maybe need to readjust their expectations a little bit this year that yes people are tired we're a year in we all thought it'd be over by now or at least better it's not it seems to be getting worse and and that's tough for everyone but you know it's not going to last forever so I, I think you know maybe people just need to be a bit more patient and a bit more understanding and pick up the telephone there's an idea eh? pick up the telephone and that's where we'll leave it here for the first half of Taiwan this week this week but we will return after these rather important commercials Welcome back to Taiwan this week and we're moving on now to pork, racto pork or simply pork in porks containing ractopamine, which were headlines yet again this week after the government's new pork product policy opening Taiwan to imports of US pork products containing the leanest and harsher ractopamine kicked in on January the 1st. And the government this week began publishing data on the volume of domestic pork on the market and the amount of pork imported on its so-called pork dashboard website. The website is updated on a regular workday basis at 11am and shows data collected from the previous day. It includes the amount of domestic pork and pork organs available on the domestic market on that particular day and it also includes the total amount of pork and pork organs that were imported on that particular day or the day before rather. While the lower half of the table shows the volume of pork and pork organs imported from specific countries. It lists countries like the United States, Spain, Denmark and several other countries. There's also information on how many of the batches had traces of ractopamine in and how much of those batches weighed in total. However, the website does not contain data on the exact residue level of ractopamine found in the imported pork products. The KMT, meanwhile, remains opposed to the move and is still questioning the validity of the data on the website. And that means the opposition party is now moving at breakneck speed to collect signatures for the second stage of its efforts to initiate a referendum opposing the government's lifting of the ban on pork imports containing ractopamine. And according to party caucus whip Lin Wei Zhou, the referendum question will ask, do you agree that a ban should be in place to prohibit the import of pork and pork products containing ractopamine? The KMT needs to collect signatures from 290,000 people, or 1.5% of eligible voters in the most recent presidential election, for the referendum to be held. Now the KMT caucus whip says the party is hoping to collect more than half a million signatures by the March 21 deadline, when the second stage petition must be sent to the Central Election Commission for review. Meanwhile, the Democratic Oversight Alliance Civic Group this week also announced plans to recall pro-ractopamine lawmakers. Now, according to the group, it plans to collect signatures in Kaohsiung and Taichung to begin with before taking the campaign nationwide, an attempt to recall mostly DPP lawmakers from each of Taiwan's 22 cities and counties. The KMT has said it backs that recall, but it's not really sort of joining it as per said 
yet. And I've just dropped all my paper, so I've got to pick it up. And here we go. So, Brian, there we go. The pork dashboard to begin with. Yeah, I'm actually just kind of amused by uh, that this was a front page headline in, in, in just uh, some newspapers. Um, it's also kind of interesting as an approach because just taking this kind of approach of uh, radical transparency, just being very open about how much pork imports are coming to Taiwan. And this is something I think the DPP could potentially adopt as a strategy regarding a lot of these uh, food safety issues. Um, this is not the first time there's been a, a referendum, a national referendum on a food safety issue. For example, last time in 2018, there was a rec- uh, the referendum on food affected from radiation from uh, Fukushima, from the Fukushima disaster. And so maybe then the DPP could adopt this in the future. The DPP was also interested in opening up Taiwan to food imports from Fukushima to build stronger ties with Japan, much as uh, Taiwan is interested, uh, the Thai administration is interested in opening up uh, Taiwan to food imp- ractopamine-treated port imports from the U.S. to build stronger ties with the U.S. economically. Um, but just, I think then the KMT will adopt the strategy of claiming that this is false data, this is fake news, that the government is manipulating things. And it will probably claim this about the pork labeling system that has been adopted too as a way to show which stores are using Taiwan pork, um, just claiming it as false data and that there is this is actually endangering the public. So the pork dashboard, Nicola, I mean, do you think the pork dashboard is someplace that the public will be going to? <laughs> Uh, it'll be on their like bookmark page on their Google homepage when they go to Chrome. I can't really speak for the whole public, but I think if people are interested in it, then if they want to know the facts, then it will be a point of reference. And I think it's good to have it. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good idea. The government has to be upfront with the data um, and they have to just keep presenting the facts. And I think it'd be very helpful if they had more facts coming from scientists themselves and kind of make it more about the science than the politics. Um, because, you know, there is a lot of misinformation out there and, and that's hard to break down, but there are ways to do it. And, you know, during the pandemic, when there was the toilet paper rush, the government did that pretty well they did it you know through humor they did it with i think i hope i get this right there was a cartoon with the premier wiggling his bum or something i hope i haven't got that wrong <laughs> but it was you know it was funny and people got the message that toilet paper wasn't running out and i think they need to maybe adopt some more clever simple strategies to just put across the facts and also be as transparent as possible because people are naturally worried about it and of course the government are going to have to do that with a referendum brian yeah, and it's not the first time that the uh, there's been a referendum on a issue like this. Uh, for example, just uh, the fact and politicians targeted for recall on the basis of the support for an issue, for example. And so I think the KMT really learned from 2018 that a referendum could benefit electorally. Attacking the party that's in power just on the basis of an issue, it's put to the referendum, but also affect its its uh, positively its effect the chance at election. But actually, this time around, because of further changes made to the referendum act by the DPP, um, the referendum date and the date of elections are now separate. And so what the effects of this will be, I think. Are, are interesting to show what the effects of political referendums in, that are put into the na- nationwide vote in Taiwan will be going forward. And Nicola, I mean, referendums are a good way to decide things or a bad way to decide things? Um, I mean, my own personal view is this is a really bad way to decide things, um, having been burnt in the UK. But I, I, I mean, also I think with... Um, uh, with an issue like this, when it's very emotionally charged, a referendum is a really a, a, just the wrong way to decide it. People need to be able to make their decisions based on science. And I think when you've got a, you know a referendum where you're scrambling for signatures and people are signing up, and a lot of people probably you know don't know the science, they don't know the facts, and you can't then make such an important decision based on how people are feeling about it. And I, I just think that's a really dangerous, dangerous way to go. And um, 
you know, the the KMT so far, they just appear to be pulling stunt after stunt. And, and it's good to have a strong opposition, but you've got to do it the right way and you've got to do it in a... Um, it's more rational, fact-based way. You can't just throw around the charges of fake news the whole time. Um, and I don't think that's responsible opposition. And Brian, what about the recall motions by the Democratic Oversight Alliance? I mean, they're, they've got to recall like f- over 50 lawmakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's unlikely to be successful. Um, but there's the precedent again of the uh, the marriage on, on marriage equality, in which there's the uh, generally Christian groups that are calling for the recall of all legislators that supported that. In the end, they only really targeted one uh, specific lawmaker who was more vocal on the issue, which was Wang Guochang. And so in this case, regarding rectopamine, there's not a particularly uh, voice that's really, really pro rectopamine treated pork to hone in on. And so I think it'll just be kind of a stunt. But uh, if if they do do this, they'll maybe target some specific lawmakers. Uh, but I think this will just be a threat that the uh, Pam Lucamp or, or critics of the whoever's in power will just leverage on going forward, just threatening to recall politicians and hoping that this kind of is a threat that will make them afraid or, or back down on an issue, or just using this as a way to kind of as a kind of political stunt. So recalling a bunch of lawmakers, Nicola, good idea, bad idea? It's just really immature politics. I mean, you know, it's just it's rabble rousing. It achieves nothing. It's it's a kind of pretty pointless ex- exercise. You you elect your politicians, you know, every four years. It's a democracy. It's not like they're there for life, right? Um, so I, I just don't think it's an effect. You can't, every time you disagree with someone, try and recall them. That's just not how democracies work. Um, there has to be room for disagreement. There has to be room for politicians and the government to do their job and to govern the country. And, and this whole process is just um, time-wasting and disruptive. And moving on from ractopamine pork to renminbi, that being news breaking on Wednesday of this week that a farmers association in Nanto County's Lugu Township had paid its members in, well, it paid its members in the Chinese currency. Now, the odd form of payment was made public by DPP Nanto County chapter member Tsung Tsung Kai. Now, speaking to reporters... He said that the association's members were allegedly paid in Chinese yuan equivalent to about 6,000 NT for working overtime in June of 2017 and December of 2017 or January of 2018. And he went on to say that it was found that the money likely came from some 600,000 renminbi that was brought into Taiwan by several of the farming association's officials sometime between 2016 and 2017. Now, the Lugu Township Farmers Association is denying any wrongdoing, saying basically, we made the money in China for our Lugu Oolong tea. We had to get it back into Taiwan. We had rather a large amount of the money. We had 800,000 renminbi of the money made selling products in China. We we then had trouble getting it back into Taiwan because, of course, an individual can only carry, when they're coming into Taiwan, 20,000 renminbi, and it was the best way to pay the farmers. Now, the Nanto County Bureau of Agricultural Affairs says its initial review of the matter shows the association did not break any laws if both sides agreed to payments in the Chinese currency. So, Nicola, I mean, if someone said, can you do me a favour, can you write an article about this, but I'll pay you in renminbi, is that a good idea? I wouldn't take that, no. But... um I, that whole story is just such a weird one, isn't it? I mean, I think we're missing a lot of the backstory because it just looks like someone didn't like someone and then complained about something and then it got leaked to the press. I mean, why now? It was in 2016, 2017. And it's like a bit dated. It's a bit weird. We don't know the facts. It, all wrongdoing has been denied. Um, I, You know, and I think the, the key is just don't break the law. There are rules around Chinese currency 
um, it doesn't sound like they have broken the law. So <laughs> I just, I'm not sure why the story's come up, really. <laughs> but Brian, it's a bit odd, Brian, of course, because, I mean, if, if, if you heard a story about someone being paid in euros in Taiwan, <laughs> it would obviously make news. If you heard someone being paid in another strange currency, for example, it would still make news here. Yeah, this yeah. was, of course, Chinese currency. Yeah, so I think particularly China has a particular sensitivity to it. I also just wonder why they didn't just convert it in a bank and avoid the scrutiny that would come from that. It just seems like an odd step to take. Um, but I think uh, there's concern about farm associations being kind of ways for, particularly the pan-blue camp has historically used them as, as ways to kind of con- uh, develop political networks among Taiwanese farmers, like clientelist networks uh, used to kind of marshal votes. Uh, there's fear among farmers that, you know, these will be used, that if you vote for the pan-green camp, for example, or support them, that your fields will dry up because of these kind of irrigation associations controlled by the KMT. And so it moves to nationalize them. But the funny thing is it doesn't actually seem to be the same issue here. Um, there's concerns about the ability of China to affect the agricultural industry in Taiwan because of how much business is being done there, uh, particularly through free trade agreements. But also, just it is also true that there are farmers that do business in China and do get payments from China. And so then why does this become an issue? That's, that's kind of a question. And now we'll move on to a former head of state, that being former President Chen Shui-bian, who aired the first edition of his new radio show this past Sunday on the Kaohsiung-based station Smile Taiwan. Chen interviewed Smile founder Xie Chun and his first guest. And speaking prior to the programme, Chen stressed that the show will not be focusing on politics, but instead he'll be interviewing people from various walks of life who have inspiring stories to share with his listeners. Now, Chen, of course, has been free on medical parole since January the 6th of 2015, after being sentenced to 20 years in prison for money laundering and bribery. The Taijong prison has said on numerous occasions that Chen is banned from discussing politics and must adhere to his medical parole regulations. And prison deputy warden Wu Chaoming was quoted this week as saying that officials from said prison did visit Chen and his residence and they voiced their concern about the show and they will be monitoring it as part of his medical parole evaluation process. So Nicola, RBN goes on air and can't talk about politics but... But there's questions about what he can and can or can't do. Well, I, I love a good inspirational story. And honestly, who doesn't need an inspirational story this year? It's all doom and gloom. So just, just let them like cheer everyone up. And, you know, it's like Smile Taiwan. You can't get a better name than that, can you? Um, so, you know, just... As long as he's not using it for a political platform, and I'm sure people will be watching that, I just think, why not just let him, you know live his life and and cheer everyone up i mean obviously he, he aired the first show on sunday brian but you think after maybe a couple of shows he might get a bit touchy on some subjects and the issue could be reported to the taijong prison yeah i'm not surprised if it would happen because i think he will eventually just eventually touch some political topic um this does not surprise when it comes to what chen has done since his release i mean for example he was previously running a facebook page under the name of his pet dog um, that was actually discussing politics. And then it, the claim was that it was not him, but everyone knew it was him. Uh, and eventually, as there was more precedent for that, he became more ability, able to actually kind of weigh in on politics, saying, for example, that if Hangor gets elected, that spells the end of Taiwan. And so I think that will happen with this this show as well, and it would not surprise me. But also, I just cannot see the current administration putting him back into jail. I mean, that would just rile up the supporters of Chen, who are uh, maybe a more ideologically hardline faction of the DPP, but are still in such numbers that Tsai does not want to offend them. Uh, potentially fearing just the backlash from, or any potential successor to Tsai because Tsai is, is going to be, cannot run for a third term. Um, they also do not want to offend the diehard Chen supporters within the party. And so I just think there's not much going to be done and it'll be this kind of ritualistic dance back and forth regarding whether he can say things publicly or political or not, but then he will at the end of the day. And of course, there's questions about whether he can stay on medical parole forever. 
Yeah, that's also a question, but I think that just uh, it would be such bad optics to put him back in jail at this point. So. And before we go this week, a self-assessment published by the Cabinet's Gender Equality Committee showed that Taiwan ranks first in Asia and sixth worldwide in terms of gender equality. Now, according to the committee, its rankings are based on the Gender Inequality Index introduced by the United Nations Development Programme in 2010, and it measures inequality between female and male achievements in three areas, those areas being reproductive health, empowerment and the labour market. The now, well, there we go. So, Nicola, the Cabinet pats itself on the back says it used the UN system and Taiwan came first in Asia. Yeah, I mean, I'm always very wary of, of rating systems and just you know, what defines them and, you know, what kind of data they're using. And also, I think, um, I think it's good at giving you a general idea because, you know, Taiwan is... Um, it, there's a lot of good things um, about Taiwan when it comes to gender equality and you know one of the big things is just it's, it's pretty safe for women to walk in the streets and and that's huge I mean you don't get that in a lot a lot of the world but um, I do think that these kind of rating systems can breed complacency and Taiwan like every other country still has a long way to go when it comes to gender equality if um, just last year the government said that women still have to work until 21st of February every year to to um, earn the same as men um, so there's still that huge uh, wage gap um, and also yes you, Taiwan has a, a female um, president which is great but look at the way she's talked about often uh, on social media or in the media that you know uh, it's um, she's criticised for being single for not having children that she can't possibly understand families or family policy and that's just pure sexism. I mean, you'd, male politicians would never be subjected to that. And there is a lot of inherent sexism and, and misogyny that, that's still very prevalent in society like it is everywhere. So, I, I, you know, I, I think you can't start to pat yourself on the back yet. Um, no one can. And of course, Brian, the cabinet came up with this because Taiwan's not a UN member, so does not appear on the official gender inequality index rankings. Mm, yeah, that's right. But it's self-reported, so I just wonder who will actually take this seriously in that sense. Um, and so I think then also just there is so much that needs to be worked on in Taiwan. Just the adultery laws were only overturned last year, and these were used to disproportionately target women with this kind of industry of private detectives that investigate women's lives for having affairs, and it sometimes would involve blackmail and, and, and so forth. Uh, and then just also that there are still restrictions on abortion that you need to have the permission of your partner in order to have an abortion, which is also just, uh, I think, just historically because of having husbands have control of their wives' bodies. That's that's why it was there. Um, also, there's been this recent like spate of just uh, cases emerging of, of sexual harassment or abuse in schools and teachers covering it up for years and years and years. And now there are all these cases coming out into the open uh, just recently, I think just with increased focus on it after a movie on a case that occurred in, in Tainan in 2012. And so just I think that points to that there's so many things to work on and just being self-congratulatory does not actually help in addressing those issues. Maybe the cabinet should have put time on third. <laughs> well, there's that too. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.